This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Katie. Uh, you have our first interview for today. We have two. Um, you spoke to Tyler James Williams, who is part of the uh, massive breakout celebrity ensemble of Abbott Elementary. Um, and it's someone who I think we've talked about amongst ourselves a lot as being kind of a stealth standout on this show, which has so many great uh, actors on it. And um yeah, I feel like you've been one of the people who's been really kind of beating the drum that he deserves more attention than maybe he's gotten thus far. Yeah, the cast is so incredible. And I feel like, you know, Jenna James, Quinta Brunson, and obviously Cheryl Lee Ralph have gotten a lot of uh, deserved attention. But um, Tyler James Williams is so interesting. His character is so strong. And he's also just been in this business since he was four years old. So I feel like he has so many stories to tell. So I felt like he would be someone really great to have on the podcast. Uh, yeah, what did you guys get to talk about? Well, I was curious about how he interacts with the young actors on the show being someone who started out so young. And, yeah. you know, he said that's been really one of the highlights of of being on the show is being able to sort of mentor young kids who kind of went through what he went through. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then we talked about his um, Globe win where he won um, for supporting actor because that was a really big moment for him to sort of have that solo um, attention on him. Yeah, this is something we talked about on last week's episode and probably will continue to, that Abbott seems to be really even more insurgent this year in the Emmy race than it was last year because it was so new last year. So I'm sure he's not going to be the one to talk about his Emmy chances being even greater. But I think we might both agree he's an even stronger contender this year. Yeah, I mean, the way they fleshed out his storyline, especially, I think is, is really strong this year. So uh, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear the interview. Let's hear your conversation with Tyler James Williams. Today, I am so excited to welcome Tyler James Williams to the podcast. He stars on Abbott Elementary, which is now airing its second season. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I wanted to kind of go back with you because I know Quinta told you she wrote this character with you in mind. So I'm curious if you could kind of tell me what was your frame of mind when she came to you with this idea to be on the show? Yeah, I think... So many times people talk about projects happening and then like nothing ever comes of it. Um, so when she first brought it up, I knew that she was somebody that I wanted to work with again. Um, but, you know, it's like best case scenario, it works out. Worst case, it doesn't. We find something else. But when it actually did start to get moving, that's when we kind of got more in depth about 
who this character could be and, and what the potential was for us, not just in making a comedy and a show that people enjoy, um, but also the impact of, you know, what the story could be. And that was one of the first times that I, you know, I'd had that conversation with a showrunner where I didn't feel a need to pitch anything. Everything was kind of just aligned already. She had such a clear understanding of who these people and characters were. So I found myself just kind of yes anding, <laughs> agreeing to pretty much everything uh, that she said because they were things that I was already thinking about. I mean, I've loved seeing Gregory and all the other characters really get fleshed out in the second season. You've obviously had more episodes and you're in the rhythm of the show and the audience you know, knows what, you're, what you guys are doing now. But tell me for you, how did you want to sort of expand him as in the second season? What was the goal for you? I think the majority of season one, Gregory was very anti to his position in the school. Um, you know, there was this feeling that he was going to be there kind of casually for the short term. So a lot of the arc of season one is getting him to making the decision. Um, so for season two, I wanted to see him concretely making the decision and learning how to be a teacher. Um, and that's, I feel like we, we really got a chance to explore that in a lot of different ways. I think it's, you know, you're limited by a character who doesn't want to be a part of things. Um, and once that character begins to embrace those things, you not only get more to play with, but I learned a lot about Gregory in those moments um, when his positions were more flexible and less rigid. Yeah. Are there people in your own life that sort of inspire your portrayal of him, or is it all just from the script? Yeah, uh, Gregory is an amalgamation of kind of all the men in my life that I, you know, I guess set my standard for manhood after. Yeah. Um, my grandfather, both of my grandfathers, there's a lot of Gregory. Um, my father, <laughs> there's a lot of my brothers. There's a lot of a lot of him there. Um, uncles for sure. Like it's, it's a lot of the men in my family. I come from, you know, a family of really dedicated, hardworking men who really, you know, loved and were dedicated to their families and raising the next generation. There was just kind of really big sense of what you do with your life sets up the next generation. So that, that level of sincerity and high stakes definitely lingers under everything Gregory does. And what does your family think of Gregory and your performance? How do you get feedback from the people in your life? They really enjoy it is what I've gotten so far. I think, you know, <laughs> they're they're proud of me being able to tell this story this way um, and representing him the way that we've chosen to represent him. But I think what I love the most is that they can laugh at things that I'm not even sure they know is them. <laughs> <laughs> the little pieces of them that I sprinkle in there that they find hilarious. I'm like, you don't, you're not even fully aware that you're looking in the mirror. Yeah. Is there uh, ways you've sort of adjusted, you know, because obviously you're, you're in this role now in, and comfortable with this character. Is the, there ways you've worked with the writers to sort of tweak things or adjust his story, you know, from how it was on the page maybe? You know, I don't really ever feel like there's much to change. Mm -hmm. I do work pretty symbiotically with the writers on the day, though. 
Um, I think, you know, on any series, you have a bunch of talented directors coming in and out, but they're coming in and out. You know what I mean? There is this sense that they're bringing their particular look on this show, but they're not there consistently outside of Randall Einhorn. So for me, I go to the writers pretty much after every take and I I'd request notes from them as to how they heard it, um, as to what they saw here, because I think I have to live in Gregory moment to moment. But they play the god of Gregory um, and what they saw and where they're trying to set up and where they're going. So um, I have a pretty close relationship with the majority of the writers, both on set and off for that reason. Because the more I can get their voice in my head and understand them when I'm reading it on the page, I can see where they're pushing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a a storyline, whether it's yours or someone else's, that's been a favorite of yours. I I personally loved Gregory's like secret gardening and then how that (laughs) tied into his father and his relation. Like, I thought that was such a smart storyline, but has there been one for you that has been sort of your favorite of the past couple seasons? Mine honestly is the um, overworked Melissa Shimenti storyline, which I think Mm. Lisa Ann Walter is playing beautifully. Um, you know, we didn't see as much of her in the first season and in the second season, I thought that arc was super smart by, by the writers to really explain how frequently this happens with teachers. And then I think Lisa finds a way to thread the needle between, um, anger and frustration, but still dedication and softness to her students. Um, and we get to see Melissa kind of unravel a bit and i think those colors that both she and the writers have been bringing to the episodes has been really some of my favorite to watch yeah i love what she's been doing this she's been doing great work it's like i I text her pretty much after every major episode for uh melissa i'm like you're just doing such beautiful beautiful work yeah for sure I'm curious, you know, your journey has been so interesting because you started working in this business so young. I th- mm-hmm. Your first role was when you were four. So how do you sort of interact with the kids on this show? You know, obviously the show has a ton of young actors in it. And, and I'm, sh- I'm curious if you have to, if you feel like you have to take on sort of a mentorship role or what, what is it like for you to see other child actors every day? It's very, it, it's, it's super interesting. And I find myself getting so much out of that part of it because I'm be able, I'm recognizing things that were happening to me. Um, I can see when a certain kid has a very specific question because they're figuring something out um, because they're learning something in that moment. And um, it allows me the opportunity. I think, you know, we would all love in our lives in some way to be the person or give back the thing that we needed when we were kids. Um, and that has been nice to be able to sit there and show them things differently, knowing that they're not just kids asking questions. You don't know who this is going to be in 15, 20 years. This could be the beginning of it. And also there's a certain fun that they have with it that they kind of throw away that I think as actors, we get so caught up in the process. We forget about that part and it's good to be, reminded of that and the way they play and the way they perform. And, you know, so much of the comedy that comes to them is so natural and they're not thinking about beats and rhythms. And it feels like it keeps me on my toes as well. God, the kids are so good on the show. They're so good. They're so good. Casting has been done a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, And 
Obviously, I have to ask about the Janine and Gregory mm-hmm. chemistry because I think it's something the fans love the most about this show. How how have the two of you sort of kept up that dance through season one and now as it progresses and changes in season two? What What is the sort of uh, interaction between you and Quinta to sort of keep that tension as it plays out? Yeah, I mean, to tell you the truth, it's a, it's a it's an alchemy that I'm not – I can't fully like diagnose just yet. You know what I mean? There's something we, we both have the same ideas of comedy. I know that for sure. Um, so when we approach their awkwardness and their um, inability, I guess, as of now to make a decision about what's happening here, um, I think we approach it very similarly. You know, I, I used to believe that I could, you know, find good chemistry with pretty much anybody that's part of my job. But I think there's also these moments where, there's something that happens inherently that you can't really control where it just clicks. Um, and I think we really understand each other as artists and we kind of speak from the same place. I think in, in one of the more recent episodes, I guess that the kiss, the one with the kiss and the flowers, um, everyone talked about that, but we had this scene where we just played off of each other at the bar. Um, and we had a general idea of where we were going and some of it was on the page and some of it wasn't. But it was just that we, the two characters were just speaking to one another. Um, so I'm, to answer the question, I'm not fully sure just yet. Give me like two or three seasons and maybe I can describe it better. Um, but right now I'm just trusting the process and how it works. And how, how far ahead do you know where Gregory goes? I mean, do the writers sort of talk to you about his overall arc in three, four seasons? Or is it... I think, you know... Me and Quinta are kind of in conversation throughout the week, you know what I mean, about what's coming in general as she, like, puts different pieces in place and she makes decisions on things. Um, I know the season arc beforehand, um, but usually towards, I'm noticing the pattern now, toward the end of a season, she starts talking about the, like, specifics of what she wants to see in the next one. So I usually have almost a full season ahead, if not like a little bit of a half of one before we even go into it. So towards the tail end of season two, I knew what the top of season three was going to start to look like. Um, So that helped me tie those two pieces together. And I was so happy to see you win at the Globes. I thought that was such a special moment where you won for supporting actor. And and I'm curious, you, you got up there and you talked about recognizing the magnitude of the moment. And I'm curious where your head was at when you took the stage. If I think, you remember. Oh, no, I, I definitely remember. A <laughs> um, few years ago, I had like been working through the idea of removing expectations from things and projects in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that anybody who did work attempting to get to a certain place couldn't create from an authentic place. Um, so I you know, was working with a therapist and, you know, just doing work on myself and dismantled that idea. I think everyone has that moment where they're like, they imagine themselves winning the award and getting up there and doing the speech. And I dismantled all of that to the point where not to say those things aren't important, but that it didn't matter to me in that way as much anymore. So when it happened, it, to me, it felt like a kiss on the forehead from the universe. But then that was, I tried to ground myself in the moment Right. I don't want it to be something that connects to my worth. 
or um, influences me in how I work as an artist. But I also didn't want the magnitude of what just happened to have slipped away either. So that that sentence was actually to me. <laughs> I was <laughs> right. trying to ground myself in this moment. And, um, you know, because we had work the next day. I was thinking about what we had to prep for tomorrow. And, like, I think there was yeah. some, like, heavy scenes that next day with, like, a lot of people. Um, so that was an attempt to really take that moment for the 30 to 45 seconds that it was. And there's also this beautiful image of you um, walking Cheryl Lee Ralph to the stage at the Emmys when mm-hmm. she won. And I thought she's, it's just wonderful to see her get these um, accolades and give these phenomenal speeches every right. time she wins. Right, right. But I'm curious what it's like for you from the inside to see her get this um, love, but also to just like be around her as an actor. Is she, is, is she as motivational in person as she is on stage every time she gives a speech is guess what I'm wondering. <laughs> I feel like her, her, just her existence is motivational. So I've known mm. Cheryl for a very long time. She did yeah. a show with my baby brother um, called Instant Mom. And I was around that set quite a bit. So to be able to go on this journey with her, having already been a fan, having already known and seen part of her journey um, has been a real privilege of my career. Her, yeah, her existence is a testament to talent that just lasts through different iterations of the industry, through different mediums. I think people would be elated to have a career like Cheryl Lee Ralph. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody really gets that. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really happy to witness it and be a part of it. I think, you know, part of my career, I've had a chance to work with some really great people. But I think part of this era was I worked in the Cheryl Lee Ralph era where she got everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's 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 big for me. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm curious, you know, after your experience on Everybody Hates Chris and on other TV you've done, if you had any trepidation, or I guess now so that the show has taken off, realizing you could be on the show for quite a few years, it is another, like, commitment of several years at least, probably. Yeah, I think um, had it not been Quinta's show, I'd be concerned. Yeah. Um, we also have very similar ideas as to one how long a show should should last and should go, mm-hmm. um, how long you can keep you know characters interesting and how to do that. Um, right. 
So this is probably the only time I wouldn't be concerned about that um, because I know that she's not necessarily chasing even what the audience wants. She's just writing her story. And that to me is when shows kind of get off the rails and you're chasing ratings right. and stuff like that. Right. Um, so here, no, I'm actually very comfortable. Um, I feel like she has a good idea of when to cut it off, um, which is great for me. So I, it's because I trust her that I'm not concerned here. And I'm curious, since you started acting so young, was there a moment when you had to really decide for yourself that you were committing to this as a career, as a as an adult or as a, you know, because I think when you start as a child actor, you're, you're going along with the work, but there mm -hmm. has to be a point where you decide this is what I'm going to do. I think this was always the only option because this is the only thing I love like this. I mean, I'm, mm. I can do other things, but I, this is the the thing that, fulfills me. I think at 17, I had to make the decision of what kind of career I wanted. That mm -hmm. was the, the difference. Um, I've always resonated more as an actor than I did as a specifically comedic actor. I need a character. I need somebody to fall into. I need to be able to do like character work and the comedy can come from that. Um, but fundamentally you prep it the same. And I think that, that moment I got with uh, Michael Wilson and he, ripped me to shreds as an actor, as he should have. Hmm. Um, and that's when I really began to choose how I wanted to do this. And how would you sort of describe the satisfaction you get from this work? Like, why is this the only thing that could fulfill you? Strangely enough, and I know it may not mean that to everybody else or even to somebody who doesn't do it, they may not be able to understand it, but it's the only thing that when I go home after the day I feel like I did something, I contributed something. The SAG Awards were huge for me. And I remember talking about it with Quinta also that it just hit differently because all I ever wanted to really do was to contribute to the community of actors that I respected. And I know how their work affected me. Yeah. So if I'm possibly doing that for somebody else or telling a story because, I mean, we, we, we sit up and we watch the news all day and stories don't connect. And then you see a movie about the story and it hits you in a way where you actually finally understand it. Um, that's my contribution in this lifetime. I can do music, but, like, I don't feel like I have anything to really contribute there. <laughs> I feel like, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I can say some cool things, but that doesn't really do anything. Um, this is the only thing that I feel like when I'm used up at the end of my life, I can say that I contributed something. It's funny. I'm always telling people that the SAG Awards is so special because actors, like, yes, there's the Oscars and the Emmys and all that, but there is something about your peers validating your story that is really special. Because I think at, at, when I decided that when I was like 17, the, the mantra was, I want to be able to contribute with the best of my time. Mm. And to sit there in a room and we, when we got on the stage is when it really landed and you look out into this sea of people who either the reason why you started or you would never imagine that anybody would put you in the same conversation as them. It's humbling. It puts it all in perspective. To me, like of the awards, that one changes the way you work as an actor. You become aware of your peers are watching this and are enjoying this and are pushing you forward. 
And it just, I, I wish we were still filming at the time because I would have loved to show up to work the next day <laughs> and seeing what you would have gotten out of me. Yeah. Right. That's so true. Um, and I read that you're an introvert. Are you a self-proclaimed introvert? A hundred percent. I'm in the house. Um, <laughs> I like, you know, I'm finally able to start speaking on it without it feeling, um, I think a lot of times when kids talk about it, people see them as ungrateful, but like I've always struggled with press. I've always struggled with large groups of people with major events with a lot of attention. My favorite part is the, the, the character breakdown and the being on set. And then I could just go home and that's it. And I think I've learned to embrace that as a kid, they tell you that that's, you have to be on and you have to be bright and bubbly and very extroverted. Um, I finally stopped trying to do that and just embraced who I was. Yeah. I'm naturally an introvert too. And there are definitely, I don't know how you guys do it. It's, it's, it's a lot. (laughs) I go to one event and then I'm, I have to be at home for three weeks to recharge. That's like, I think the week of the SAG awards, you also had the NAACP image awards. And that was two nights back to back. And I was like, you are not seeing me for days. I can't, I have to, it was so, so many interactions. Um, but you know, I, I read somewhere that a lot of artists are, you know what I mean? We're, we have to be able to sit and think and work and, you know, figure things out. So I, I definitely resonate more as that than a performer or an entertainer because I, I just, I can't be out like that that much. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. And so much of acting, I think, and writing is, is observing. And I think mm-hmm. that's why there's a lot of introverts that like to observe. But right. um, I'm curious how that affects how you deal with sort of this level of, of fame and attention, because I assume it's gone up since the show has been such a huge hit. Yeah. Um, I'm happy that I was able to learn that about myself before Abbott, um, because I was able to prepare for it. As I started watching the numbers come in for the first few episodes and all of that, I was like, okay, this may be a thing. So I like, I deleted Twitter. So I was like, I already know I just can't do that and created like some strong boundaries also have been spending like a lot more time in New York. Um, mm-hmm. It's where I am now because it feels like a city I can kind of disappear into. And LA is so like on all the time. So I try to be as disconnected from the response to Abbott as I can. Like mm-hmm. I'm trying, I'm not really watching episodes like that. Um, but I, I don't feel like it's my job to engage with the audience's responses. It's my job to just continue to do the work. Yeah, I think that's true. And obviously Abbott takes up a lot of your time with filming and, and everything, but I'm curious if this being on the show has sort of changed what you're looking for next from your career, what other kinds of projects you want to pursue, what kind of stories you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it slowed me down quite a bit. I'm like, Mm. really, I'm getting really picky um, because it has to be a combination of a few things. It has to be something that I feel is going to be artistically fulfilling. Um, It has to be a something I don't feel like is being told or a story that's being told or light shined upon. You know, I think after you do anything that's big, you'll get a lot of offers of the same thing. Yeah. And that doesn't interest me at all. Um, but because Abbott exists right now, and I, I'm kind of like have a one track brain most of the time, um, I don't feel a need to take a bunch. I like focusing on this and making it as good as it can be. I think we, we're, we're still beginning to mine the potential that is Abbott. So I don't mind it being my singular focus right now. 
Um, but yeah, the bar is definitely higher for things. Um, and I, I find myself, you know, having conversations with my agent about bring me anything that is the opposite of what I'm doing currently. Um, because that's probably what it's going to, what it's going to take in order for me to feel fulfilled. So now we're going to hear the conversation that I had with Kelly Reichert, which was really a thrill for me. I have been a enormous fan of her work for a really long time. Uh, her new film is called Showing Up. It reunites her with Michelle Williams for, I believe, the fourth time. They made Wendy and Lucy together back in 2008, as well as Meek's Cutoff and Certain Women. Um, and her last film, First Cow, was released in March 2020, which, Rebecca, you may remember, was a little bit of a challenging period for oh, yeah. movies to open in theaters. Just a little bit. Um, and we actually had uh, John McGarrow, who was the star of First Cow, on this podcast back then. So I kind of started talking to her about, you know, being back out with a movie for the first time since then. But showing up is also really a comedy. And I think if you've seen Kelly Reichardt movies before, you know it's not going to be like a, a real laugh-out-loud comedy, though I certainly did. Um, it stars Michelle Williams as a sculptor who is kind of a frustrated artist but somewhat successful, but is kind of one of those people who is going to be grouchy in, uh, in any circumstance, no matter what. And there's this great ensemble around her, including Hong Chow, fellow recent Oscar nominee, as kind of the opposite of her, another sculptor and her landlord who is a much sunnier personality. Um, and then Judd Hirsch also shows up halfway through as a Fableman's reunion. Um, Rebecca, I know you haven't seen Showing Up yet, but I think uh, you and I have both agreed that Hong Chow is on the rise, that Michelle Williams can do no wrong. Um, it's kind of a major spring event as far as I'm concerned. I am dying to see it and I'm so jealous you've seen it already and you got to talk to Kelly. I think she, she as a director I just think she gets such incredible performances out of actors and I I don't know if that's just the way she directs or the way she casts and I'm curious you know what you were able to talk to her about when it came to putting this film together. Yeah I've always thought she got amazing performances from Michelle Williams whose face is so expressive and can do so little and convey so much and she had said this in another interview and I talked to her about it as well that she saw uh, Michelle Williams in Fosse Verdon and thought oh I've been holding her back she can do so much more and and her performance in this is really not that much like Fosse Verdon or the Fablemans which she made I think immediately after this um, but it is a little more dynamic there is kind of a looseness to this movie to her performance to Hong Chow's uh, John McGarrow's kind of a, a less sunny character than when he was in First Cow. Um, I, I love that she's bringing people back, kind of building an entire world of this art college, this this fictional art school in Portland that she made. Um, Andre Benjamin, aka Andre 3000, uh, is a minor character in it. And also <laughs> there's a credit early in the film that says Flute by Andre Benjamin. So you get to spend the whole movie waiting to hear him play the flute and it does not disappoint. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a delight. So um, hear more about it in my conversation with Kelly Reichardt. Kelly Record, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Um, I realized it was almost exactly three years ago that we had John Magaro on this podcast talking about First Cow. And, you know, we probably recorded that interview on like March 1st, 2020 or something like that. And, you know, for, for you opening another movie in the spring in kind of the same window three years later, do you feel like you're getting kind of a do-over on, on First Cow having opened at just a crazy time for movie theaters? Yes. I think we opened on the... Friday before the movie theaters closed. So yeah. I think the movie played for like three days. Um, but other people have that story too. Yeah. yeah so Mick, am I holding my breath or something waiting for the next? Beautiful. <laughs> uh, I'm ha really happy to be out and about with the film. We've been, uh, I mean, it's not open yet, but we showed it in New York and then we went to 
Uh, the Wexner Center, a place I love in uh, Columbus, Ohio. My friend was there. He was just talking about uh, seeing you at the Q&A for that. So yeah. It's a great place that has supported me for a long time. And so it's really fun to go there and get an excuse to see the, all those people. And <laughs> in, in really the last time I was at the Wexner Center, they were having the exhibit in their galleries of the Black Mountain College uh, oh, cool. exhibit, which was... Black Mountain College was a big sort of influence. Uh, you know, it exists in this movie showing up. Mm-hmm. And that show was um, fantastic if you got to see it. So, anywho, yeah, I'm happy. Then we went to, well, we were in Chicago. And then, yeah, we had really, we've been having a really nice time, actually. It's been cool. I mean, you've shown a lot of your films at festivals before and gotten that experience, but is it interesting getting laughs? Like, there's so many, there's so much more humor in this. I saw it at the New York Film Festival, and there really were a lot of really lovely, warm laughs throughout the whole screening of that. And I wonder if that feels new for you, um, you know, given the tone of this compared to some of your other work. <laughs> well, I don't sit through the movies, so. Ah. Um, but, uh, so, but there's a difference in tone while you're making a film that has some levity to it, obviously in the editing room and in the making of. Um, John Raymond, you know, my writing partner, he always wanted, been wanting to make a high school comedy forever. Oh. And um, this isn't either of those things, not like a capital C comedy by any means, and nor is it a high school, but it's maybe as close as we would get to that sort of thing. Yeah. So. I love that it's so you filmed at I think it was a closed college and you're, you're filming in 2021. So there's not a lot of people around anywhere because it has such a feeling of kind of sticking your head in a room and seeing a class going on. But I'm assuming you guys made all of those scenes happen. You didn't just walk in on a figure drawing class. You had to make all of that. So, what- well, yeah, this was filmed at the Oregon College of Arts and Crafts, which it was written for that place, which is a really important um, ceramics home uh, for it's over 100 years old, not in this particular location, but it's been in that location for a long time, too. And it's, you know, kind of a pivotal place in the Pacific Northwest through the 60s, 70s, and onward. Uh, anyone you talk to in Portland has some relation to that place. And it shuttered its doors in 2018, I think, was the last class. And so, like many art schools around the country, it closed, which was a really big deal in the town. And because of COVID, the um, sort of work on it to become what it's going to be, uh, which is a private middle school, um, stopped. And so we were able, the space was completely empty and we were allowed to film in it, which was amazing and great. But yeah, we created an entire uh, art school. And that was one of the most fun things probably ever get to do. Uh, Figure out what you want every class to be. And then it being COVID, people had a lot of time in the art. Tony Gasparro, the production designer, and his art team got tons of local artists and recent art school graduates to come. And they were in the rooms every day working to build the art for the school. Then eventually the people that were going to be this play the students came And that was the same group of people pretty much every day. Mm. Uh, Again, because of COVID, people sort of had to be all in or all out. And and so they're coming to the school and they're just killing time because, you know, until they're doing something again. And so they, you know, in rooms with all these looms and dyes and clay, and they're just all learning how to make stuff. And so it became a real 
place of activity. And then I'd come, they'd be like teaching me how to do stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, it really came to life. And I even got to have Ben Coonley, who I teach with at Bard, fly out and built his uh, dome. uh, Oh, that's him with the projections. So, yeah, so he worked with the art department and did his, yeah, built his dome there. And and that's also a little nod to Black Mountain College. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where Buckminster Fuller taught, of course. So anyway, yeah, it was all, yeah. I mean, when you think about a, a movie, especially a movie, I think, set in the art world, you kind of imagine something really high stakes where it's galleries and bids and things like that. And the art in this movie is high stakes for the characters. You know, Lizzie just puts a lot into her work in the show, but it's not like there's some big sale at the end of it or some like big magazine profile. It's it's not like she's making it just for herself, but it's sort it's more personal than that. And I'm interested in why you wanted to depict art on that scale, where it's not just for fun, but it's not a high stakes, you're going to become a millionaire kind of thing. Well, I guess the focus on that people make art for reasons other than money. People make art because they're compelled to, it's how they deal with the world and how they translate things to the world. And and for some people, it's like food. You need to sit down at the table every day and work or go to your studio every day and work for other things to have some kind of balance to them or to make some kind of sense to you. And so if you're so compelled, how do you arrange that time and that energy around your life of work and family and friends and paying the rent and all those things. And how do those things play back into the work you're making and that flow of it? And so, yeah, that is kind of what we were interested in. We were interested in, in a showing process of making stuff And just not the highlight moments, but the moments that occur every day, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's involved with really what's just work, you know. I mean, when you come from film where the money is such a more unavoidable aspect of it because films just cost more money to make, is it kind of a a corrective or like getting a different view of the work? Or is it more of how you view your work than I might imagine uh, even making movies that are just expensive? (laughs) Making movies are expensive. Um, even the smallest movie is expensive. It's easy. I totally just going into these studios and watching artists work. And I made a couple short films of artists working um, while we were working on the script. Are you showing those anywhere or are they just? You know, I made them for the Pompidou. And mm. uh, they've been, we just showed them at the Wexner Center. And one of the artists was Michelle Segray. I went to her studio and filmed her there and her art's in the um, film. They're Hong Chao's characters, sculptures, right? Yeah. Yeah, Joe's work. Just to figure out how I, um, would, what goes on in a day in studios. Also filmed Jessica Hutchins-Jackson out at Cal State. She was um, doing some clay work out there, giant kilns and... Um, and her glasses and her glass works are in the film. Mm-hmm. And her studio is nearby our camera house in Portland. So I spend a lot of time, st- like if I'm ever just like, uh, I'm overwhelmed, I go to Jessica's studio and you're like looking at someone who can just touch things and doesn't need 50 people to do anything. And you just touch it and you could actually, at the end of the day, look at what you made and it's something. Yeah. And which is like the furthest thing from filmmaking as <laughs> yeah. you're saying. Um, I mean, it's funny, it all, everything comes with some 
price tag, depending sure. on what your salary is. I mean, like we just, you know, I was just going out before we even started and buying uh, supplies for Hong and Michelle before any kind of like company was set up. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it costs this much, uh, you yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, a more accessible, more immediate thing. And, um, but you know, it has its own stresses, but it was fun to dip into that. And, um, yeah, it made me wonder if you ever felt jealous of that kind of like singular focus, like it's me and my clay and that's all it takes to make my, (laughs) to make my art. Absolutely. I'm working with John Raymond early, and then I, I have this time on my own where I'm sort of, in this case, figuring out the school or building my, yeah. you know, figuring out how I'm, it's going to be shot, figuring out, you know, putting books together for, you know, either, in this case, April Napier and the costumer, who did just such an amazing job, or Tony Gasparro, and um, just getting the look of the film together, which happens over a really long time and happens while working on the script and and what I, how I'm going to work with Chris Blavelt. And so I do have that time solo and I do enjoy working with each, you know, the one on one aspect of when you're working with people and it's working and then they're adding their bringing, you know, making your stuff better base essentially and. And then just seeing that whole school come to life where there's so many people were in every room building stuff. You made a whole world that didn't exist. It did. And and that would not have happened alone at a table Mm -hmm. making clay. And I, there's a point where there's like a lot of energy to feed off you. Um, I mean, for me to feed off of that comes with the shared experience and then there's a whole separate world of production that's going on where the producers and all the facilitators are figuring out like how to make all this work. And mm-hmm. you go to their world and you're like, you know, so um, how fortunate to have so many people working towards <laughs> and then you get back alone again in the editing room um, mm-hmm. and things quiet down and you can meet your project again on your own by yourself. Mm. Yeah. And you have those conversations with Michelle Williams pretty early, too. You know, you've worked together long enough that you were talking with her pretty early in the process of making this. Um, John and I worked a long time on our own, like working our way into what this movie would be. And just the idea of, you know, with just so many different ideas of in my mind of who this person would be physically, what they look like, who they are inside, all that stuff you know, a salad of people we know, people we don't know. Well, you'd maybe been making a biopic at one point with this before? Yeah, early on, we were going to make a biopic of Emily Carr during her sort of dormant years when she was, she became a landlord um, and because she thought that would help facilitate more time to make work, but her tenants were really needy and she, <laughs> she painted even less. But yeah, and we went to Vancouver to research her and discovered how insanely that she's like a, a Canadian treasure and um, not an obscure painter at all. So that didn't work, but we kept <laughs> the landlord aspect of it, yeah. obviously. So um, really, uh, this it was an image of Lee Bonacue that a producer sent me in who is very interested in art 
I love Lee Bonacue, and I didn't really know what she looked like, I guess. And then I looked at Lee Bonacue, and I thought, oh, I can make this with Michelle. You know, <laughs> I, I, and it, it kind of turned the key for me because it's always great to work with Michelle. She's like the best, and she's so wonderful to work with. And so that kind of turned, like having the image of Lee Bonacue was really helpful to me. And I think that's the first thing I sent, before I sent Michelle Clay or the script, I sent her a picture of Lee Bonacue. Mm. And, uh, that was the very beginning of our conversations. And then, yeah, then I sent her the clay and she, you know, that was just kind of to get her attention because she had a lot going on. <laughs> Listen, here's this pound of clay. <laughs> um, and she started working with Cynthia over Zoom for months out and then came to Portland and worked with her in her studio. And then we kind of took, I think the art department pretty much cleared out Cynthia's studio and moved all that a lot of her stuff into what became Michelle's studio because that's the space Michelle had been working in. Yeah. I love what you said in another interview about watching Fosse Verdon and kind of seeing an aspect of Michelle you hadn't because, you know, you guys have worked together so much. Her performances in your movies have been so strong and it kind of felt like you had tapped into everything. And I'm really interested just to hear more about when, after seeing that, knowing what, what you could work with her on, what you could maybe push her into more things or kind of allow her to push you maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, we have years apart and, uh, you know, when we're off doing different things and don't see each other and, and then you kind of just, I get the benefit of everything she's been out learning and growing and, um, and yeah, watching Fosse Vernon was, uh, I liked it as a project, first of all, but just the way she was using her body, every part of it, I, completely bought her as a dancer Hmm. and yeah she just had there was a lot of range there in every aspect of the performance I thought and I thought oh my goodness I I really am locking Michelle in uh Hmm. look at all she's got up her sleeve and so it's been a lot of years since Wendy and Lucy and so obviously she's growing and always and uh and so, yeah, that was cool. It, I, I think just the years of working together that there's, we always kind of trusted each other. Michelle was very trusting from the beginning. I don't know how I got the benefit of that, but uh, she was. And, um, but the trusting of yourself is a maker to not, you know, necessarily start out at the point you want to arrive at. Mm-hmm. We're like, less, 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 you know, to let there be some more and pull back from that and see what the options are. So, um, all those things. So it's always a different ride each each time, and and of course, by necessity because there's uh, different, you know, people she's doing scenes with. Uh, Hong Chao was you know new and great and had a really. I mean, I kind of can't picture the movie without Hong now. Is that role? Uh, and also the animals change, and you know she had a cat, and she had to, you know deal with this cat, and um, the scene with Judd Hirsch in his studio is really one of my favorite scenes in the film, and and just getting to mix her and John McGarrow up, and Marianne Plunkett was actually Michelle's idea. Oh yeah, uh, she was like, yeah, she should be my mom, and I was like, okay, let me check her out, and I, you know, and it, it's she's fantastic. I mean, I loved working; she was great. Yeah. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. 
From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Um, one more cast question, though, to ask, because uh, you see before you meet him in the film, you see Flute by Andre Benjamin in the credits. And it's like, whoa, OK, like what is yeah, it's a spoiler? That, that is that a spoiler? No, no, no. In the movie, when you oh. see that credit. <laughs> but, you know, but um, hopefully you just caught up with him as Eric. Well, and you forget about the flute because the music isn't flute based for so long. And then when it comes back, you're like, oh, yeah. Right. It's um, Ethan, a score by Ethan Rose and. You know, that so much in the film is very tactile and, you know, it's like clay and just everybody has their hands on things, textiles and yarn and all these things. So uh, I needed a digital element in mm. the movie to set against that. And that came in in the score. And then, yeah, Andre let me record him playing the flute, which he's always playing whenever he's not working. Oh, so you set. had him in the film as an actor before the music totally. came out? Okay. Yeah, he was, um, and he went out to CalArts and worked at the Kilms and got really sucked into it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was surprised he even got back to me. He's like, hey, yeah, what are you thinking? Okay, <laughs> wow, cool. All right, so uh, this is good. Uh, I work with... a. Gail Keller, a casting director I've worked with for a long time, and I'm pretty sure Andre was like, she's the first person who sent me this picture of Andre, not that we didn't know where he would, and I had a, a picture of him on my wall, and I was like, oh yeah, me, this like is kind of the vibe of Eric, like this, mm. uh, the kiln, the kiln master. So, um, but he's, when he's not on set, he's always just walking around playing his flute, like he has this big wooden flute he carries with him, and and so the sound is kind of always around and coming through. Yeah, so that was Andre. And then he, he let me record him. We, we recorded him with our wonderful sound team. And we just he went out into a field and they recorded him on the last day of the college. And the crew just sat around and listened to Andre play. It was really beautiful. And, that sounds uh, glorious. Yeah, great. I feel like um, Andre Benjamin has this, this attitude, this like warm encouragement of people's art that kind of carries through the whole film where there's there's wild art all throughout this and you see people working on things and figuring things out and experimenting and as someone who doesn't know a lot about art I don't really know if it's good art or bad art and it doesn't seem to matter it's like this it's space of experimenting with things and I'm curious about how you capture that attitude because it's okay to laugh at people kind of dancing in a field to to hippie music but it's not derisive and I think a lot of movies wouldn't be able to strike that tone so I'm curious how you did that. Well, I, um, I mean, I teach at a liberal arts college and have for a long time, so I, lo I watch a lot of first work. I love watching people, like, what they're pointing a camera at for the first time. I mean, I can laugh at anything. Everything's funny. You know, I can <laughs> laugh at my own stupid stuff. But, um, but it's also, uh, I'm not making fun of anybody because, uh, I mean, most of the work in the movie uh, is art I really love. I think from the beginning, you know, we wanted to pay homage to uh, people that make things. And, and people um, going for it, you know, things that are big and weird and experimental, but interesting. Yeah, Michelle stuff is, yeah. yeah. Like, I can remember uh, James Legros walking into this, the gallery where Michelle's stuff was and in before we shot. And he was looking around and he's like, I guess I'm just not smart enough to get it. And I was like, get what, you know? <laughs> and then, like, by day uh, four, I walked in there, and he's just, like, sitting there with the stuff. And he's like, oh, this stuff's, yeah, really making me feel nice. 
And um, so that's great. You know, it's it's all subjective, but it's also like I think uh, I, I felt really fortunate to get the work I got in the film. And there is, you know, humor in all of it. And but I'm not taking a pot shot at art school. I'm yeah. like too deep in and invested in it all to and, and too sad to see schools closing to be doing that. Well, and Lizzie's grouchiness as a character kind of feels like an opportunity for anyone who works on anything to laugh at themselves. Like when we, you know, I certainly related to just being so wrapped up in how busy I was uh, and annoyed by the world. Like that feels like the sense of humor of of, for any creative person to, you know, chill out maybe once in a while. Yeah. Yes. The crankiness is I completely can relate to it, you know. Yeah, I think you've said you're much more of a of a of a Lizzie than a Joe, be able to yeah, let things roll off your back. On the day. Depend I have my Joe days. I have my Joe days, but yeah. I mean anything you're all in on, uh I don't know. I have friends who make stuff and that you go like, How was your day in the studio? They're like, Great. They made great stuff and I'm like, How do you <laughs> that are writers? And you go like you like how you know, I talk at the end of the day and every day they're like, Oh, I did good work today. And um <laughs> I don't think John, Raymond, or I, or two of us are like that. We're like, well, I don't know. Well, maybe. <laughs> but um, God love the people that just feel great about what they're doing. I mean, I just don't think uh, some people have a bigger joy kind of center in them. They can surround the rest of us and help us. They can, they can tap into it more easily. So, yeah. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our roundtable conversation. More Emmy conversation abounds. Uh, you can find us in the meantime on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And um, I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.